a lot of people that I talk to are really anxious about decisions. Really anxious about decisions. I think rightly so. Because so much of our lives are based on, on just sometimes just one decision. One decision means a it is the difference between disaster and success. It's the difference between life and death. Just one decision. Now, thankfully, I think a lot of the biggest decisions are the ones that are really clear. It's really clear what we ought to do. But we still make those decisions hard. And I think what we see in, in God's Word today is, is are, are people making decisions? Decisions that could be disastrous. But when we are faced with difficult circumstances, today when you hear God's Word, I hope that you'll trust God. That's the most important decision that anyone is ever going to make. Am I going to trust myself? And am, I, am I going to trust in something else? Or am I going to trust God? In difficult situations, am I going to trust in God and His Son, Jesus Christ, and in His Word, the Holy Scriptures? Today we're going to be in 1 Samuel 27. 1 Samuel 27. We're just going to start with a question. Is this a disastrous decision? Is this a disastrous decision? 1 Samuel 27. 1 Samuel 27. We're going to start with verse 1. And just read with me till I stop, okay? So 1 Samuel 27, starting with verse 1. This is what it says. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over. He and the six hundred men who were with him. So Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahanoam of Jezreel, and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but could take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremiahites. Or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us, lest they should tell about us and say, So David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, He has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant. In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understanding that you understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. 
David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. So is this a disastrous decision? What do you think about David's decision in verse 1? I want us to be sympathetic with David. David has been a fugitive probably for a long time. He's been running for his life. Uh, he, he, is, he is trying to, to, to take care of himself, trying to take care of a family, trying to take care of these 600 men and their families. And uh, Saul is intent on killing him. Saul has come out against him numerous times, over and over, even after Saul a couple times said, Hey, why don't you come on back, David? I'm, I'm not going to try and harm you anymore. But obviously he really can't trust what Saul says. Saul keeps coming after him. There were even, at the end of chapter 26, uh, David even says there are some within Israel, there are some around Saul who are even trying to get David to, to go out away from the heritage of God, to go out of the land, to go and serve other gods. David, David, why don't you, you're not, even a, you're not even an Israelite anymore. Go and do something else. Not only are you not king, you're not even a part of the people of God at all. And David's trying to take care of his own household. He's trying to uh, keep his keep his family alive. He's trying to keep the families of his men uh, and their wives and their, their, them, them alive. And so he does something that takes care of them. He goes and lives with the Philistines. He makes a deal to be a mercenary for Achish, the king of Gath. That's the same Gath that Goliath was from. Same Gath. So he makes a deal. So let's be sympathetic with David. He really has been on the run. On the other hand, David has been hearing this message through people all along the way. Jonathan comes out to him in, 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 in chapter 20 and says, I know that God's going to make you king. And that nobody, no enemy that comes against you is going to succeed. Abigail comes to him in, in chapter 25 and says, I know that God has you in the bundle of the living and that he is going to cast out all of your enemies. I know that you're going to be king. Even Saul himself in chapter 24 and chapter 26 says, I know that one day you're going to be king. I know that, that God is going to make you succeed. Over and over again, God has delivered David out of, out of every tight spot, out of every difficulty. He has given him this message from multiple people that he is going to be king, that none of his enemies are going to prevail. I think, I think this is where David's at. Is he, is he doing wrong when he goes to the land of the Philistines? I think a lot of us end up in these kinds of situations. And am I... Am I being prudent or am I being faithless? I think on balance what David, the decision that David makes here is a bad one. And I want to compare it to another decision that another uh, man in the Bible makes. Genesis 12, uh, God speaks to Abraham. He's then known as Abram. Uh, God speaks to Abraham and says, I am going to give you this land that you're, you're walking in. And I'm going to give you offspring. And right after that, there's a famine. And, and Abraham leaves the land that God promised him. And goes down to Egypt where his wife is taken into, into Pharaoh's household. 
thus endangering the very offspring that God had promised him. So Abraham gets a promise of land and offspring, and the very next thing that Abraham does, as soon as things get, get, get difficult, he endangers the land and the, and the offspring. And what do you think God does to Abraham when he goes down to Egypt? Does he punish Abraham? No. He defends Abraham. He punishes Pharaoh. He makes Abraham rich. Look at what happens to David. God's doing the very same thing. I think that David, David has this promise. He's heard Samuel. Anoint, uh, Samuel has anointed him king. Jonathan and Abigail and, and, and Saul have assured him that one day he's going to be king, that none of his enemies are going to, going to succeed. And what does, what does David do? He goes over to the Philistines. Do you know how hard it is to be the king of Israel while you live with the Philistines? That's what he does. And does God punish David? No, he doesn't. Instead, God takes care of David. God preserves David. God, even, I think, it's, I think as we go through 1 Samuel, it's easy to look at David as an exemplary person. In many ways, he is. He is, a, he is an example to us of somebody who is faithful, who trusts God, who is a man after God's own heart. But it's easy for us to think that the reason why everything is going good for David, the reason why he's succeeding, is because he's such a good guy. It is not because of David's faithfulness, though, that he succeeded. God is often working through his good works. He's working through David's faithfulness. But it's not about David's faithfulness. It's about God's faithfulness. God is much more committed to keeping his promises than Abraham was. He's much more committed to keeping his promises than even David is. God's going to preserve David even when David is making bad decisions. Now then, I don't want to only pay attention to what David is doing. Pay attention to what God is doing here. You know, God is not mentioned. His name is not mentioned in chapter 27. He's not talked about. But what we should be trained to do by the scriptures, and particularly by the story of David, is to see God's hand at work in everything. To see that God is at work behind the scenes, so to speak. He is at work providentially, taking care of David. And so for one, God protects David. God protects David from Saul. Saul really does stop trying to kill David at this point. He also protects David from Achish. He, he, David gets this, this town to live in that's far away from Kish, away from the surveillance, away from the observation of Achish so that Achish doesn't know what David is doing. Not only that, but God is working through David. God is, God is David is is uh, deceiving Achish as, he's, as he often does. He, all the way through, whenever you see David and Achish, David is deceiving Achish. Uh, and, but David is already even acting something like the king of Israel. He's, the, these inhabitants that have been in the land of old, what we would call the Canaanites, these were people who were very immoral. We could go through and catalog all of their, all of their immorality, including things like, like child sacrifice. Well, he is acting as God's instrument of judgment against them, even the same way that Joshua did. He's even defeating the Amalekites, uh, the, the, the very same people that Saul was supposed to deal with, but didn't. And so God is working through David. 
God is at work all through this. Still, David has a dilemma. He is there. He is the servant, the mercenary of Akish. And Akish says, hey, Philistines are lining up. You know, it's springtime. We're about to go to war. That's, that's wartime. The Israelites are lining up. It's wartime. We're about to go against the, we're about to go against the, uh, the Israelites, and uh, you're going to fight with me. How wrong would it be for the one who has been anointed to be the king of Israel to, to then go out and kill Israelites? How hard would it be for David to one day rule over Israel when he has been killing Israelites? All through this, God is preserving him. And, and even you look at verse 12, uh, Akish concludes David has made himself a stench. To the Israelites, in fact, by these actions, David has probably been ingratiating himself to the Israelites. But here's this dilemma. And we're really just left hanging. This is, this is just the, this is the cliffhanger part of the story. This is the, this is the show or the movie that ends uh, before you get any kind of conclusion. And so we're just left hanging. But what we ought to, to be able to say at this point is when we're facing with difficult circumstances... We have to keep trusting the promises of God. And we have to know that no matter how, how unlikely or improbable it looks to us, God is going to keep his promises. Now then, we've asked the question, is this a disastrous decision? Uh, we've concluded, David has made a bad decision. But next we see that Saul does make a disastrous decision. A decision that we all ought to be warned against. A disastrous decision. Pick up in chapter 28. Start reading with me in verse 3. It says, Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine, divine from me. By a spirit, and bring up from me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for me, for trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Samuel, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more. 
either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel, and those those strengthened him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand, and I have listened to, you, to what you have said to me. Now therefore you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you, and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. Well, you see kind of the background in, in, verses, uh, in, in verses 1 and 2, chapter 28, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 28, verses 3 and 4. The background is Saul, this nationwide prophet that everybody knew and respected, is dead. Also, all of the mediums and necromancers have been put out of the land. That is, Samuel's dead, and everybody who speaks to the dead is also outside the land. Now then, what, is, what does Saul do? Saul sees that the Philistines are lining up against him, and he says, I need a word. I need somebody to give me some kind of assurance, some kind of, some kind of encouragement. And, and he inquires of the Lord. Here's the problem. He had rejected God and his word. Way back in chapter 15, he had rejected God's word to him that, that told him to carry out the Lord's commands. He had, he had thought his own way. He had come up with his own ideas. Not only that, but he inquires in all the ordinary ways by dreams. God spoke to people by dreams. Say, for instance, in the book of Genesis, uh, he spoke to people uh, through the priest. That's the idea of the Urim. The, there's a breast piece that the, the priest had that he could used to, to find out the, the word of God. He, he often spoke to people by prophets in that time. But Saul doesn't get any word from God. And so he says, I need a word from God. Samuel's dead. Somebody find me somebody who speaks to the dead. And conveniently, there are a couple of guys in, in Saul's crew who know about a medium in, uh, in Endor. This, by the way, he has to go around the Philistines in order to get to Endor. So he, he goes around the Philistines to get to this medium at Endor. And he goes to her and he says, before, before I get too far, this is, this is what often happens to people. We reject the word of God, but that doesn't mean that we don't want a word from somebody. Now, I, I fear that too often, even in the church... There, there are churches or there are people within the church who reject God's word. They reject what God's word has to say. That doesn't mean that they don't want to hear a word of assurance or encouragement from somebody. They want somebody to tell them something. How much, if that's true sometimes in the church, how much more is it true in the world? 
You know, when people are turning away from God or rejecting God's word, they're not, they're not turning into purely secular atheism. They are creating their own personalized form of paganism. They want a word from somebody. They can, they can add, add all, kinds of, all kinds of spiritualities and religions and philosophies. They turn from God's word to something else. People can't stop being religious. People can't stop being spiritual. What they can do is stop listening to God's word. What, 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 if, what if we are in a difficult circumstance and we, we are crying out to God and we feel like, we feel like, God's not answering us, or his word is not enough for us, what should we do? You know what the psalmist does? Psalm 13, Psalm 88. You know what he keeps doing? keeps crying out to God. He doesn't turn away from God. There is no place else to turn but to God. You keep crying out to God. If you feel like God is not helping, if you feel like there's no word from God or his word is not sufficient for you, you you don't turn away from God to another word. You keep trusting in God. Even think about what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He quotes Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, in his humanity, is bearing the sin of the world even facing the abandonment that our sin deserves, and yet he still cries out. What does he say? My God! My God! There is no other God. His God is still the one true God. There is no other God to turn to. There is no other God for us to turn to. There is no other word. There is no, there is no turning. The, this is something that is condemned in the Old Testament. This is uh, this, I, this, any kind of divination, sorcery, necromancy, any kind of false spirituality. It is condemned. And, I, and our world is filled with people who are searching. They are searching in the bookstores and on TV and through Oprah for some kind of spirituality that is going to meet their needs. You don't need any other word from God except this word. You need the word of God that he has spoken through the prophets and the apostles. We should be trusting in that word. Not trying to add to it, not trying to substitute. Anyway, he goes to this, he goes to this medium. And uh, he, he goes to her and, and, and he says to her, she says to him, well, you know what Saul does to mediums and necromancers. You know what Saul does to people who uh, speak to speak to the dead. You know, this is in accordance with, with God's word. And what, what else it does is it lets us know that Saul knows this is wrong. Saul was the one who cut him off. Saul was the one who ran him out of the land or, or even executed them. Capital punishment. He knows it's wrong. Look at what he says, though. Look at what he says. Give me a second to find it. Verse 10. But Paul swore to her by the Lord. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. You know what's worse than looking for another word besides God's word? It's straight up contradicting God's word. Be on guard against those who twist God's word and contradict God's word. The very thing that God condemns, Saul says, no, 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 no. The Lord, he's not going to do anything to you. But then from there, she, she starts to 
she, she, she says, you know, who do you want me to call? Saul says, I want you to call Sandy. Now then, notice how the lady responds to Samuel. I think that this is an indication that this is not normally what happens. She doesn't normally speak to people who have died. She normally reads people. She may be in some way speaking to to demonic uh, spirits. But she does not normally actually meet people who have died. So she cries out when she sees Samuel. And she also knows this is Saul. I don't know. I, we don't know how. And this is not. This is not ordinary. I think we should be really careful about about uh, deriving our our uh, our understanding of the afterlife from from this chapter. I mean, what this lady says, what this woman says about uh, I see a God coming up from the earth. You know that that that's from the that's from the language of a spiritist or a medium or a witch or a necromancer. That's not that's not the kind of person that we ought to be thinking of there. Uh, we, we are, we're not supposed to be taking our theology of, of death from her. But anyway, she sees somebody and, 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 and Saul says, well, describe it to me. And describes a guy, an old man in a robe. You remember in chapter 15, it was, uh, it was uh, Saul who grabbed the robe of Samuel and it tore. He always thinks of, of Samuel as being a robe. He knows that Samuel. He, he bows down, pays homage to Samuel. And Samuel says... Why have you disturbed me? And Saul says, Well, the Philistines are warring against me, and I tried to inquire of the Lord, but God is against me. God doesn't give me a word. And what does is, what is Samuel say? If the, if the Lord is against you, what do you want me to do? You know, if the Lord is against you, nobody can help you. There's, there's no other word, there is no other, there is no other spirituality, religion, philosophy that's going to help you. If God's against you, there's no help for you. Except Jesus Christ. You know, our, our sin makes God hostile toward us. It makes us His enemies. That's that's real. That, that, is, that is genuinely, uh, the, a lot of times the word in a kind of traditional uh, translation is enmity. That is, there is something in the way that makes, makes us hostile toward God and God hostile toward us. And that thing, that enmity that is in the way, is our sin. If you are in sin, God is hostile toward you. The only thing that can make God favorable toward you is to have that hostility taken away, to have that, that enmity, that sin taken away. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins to remove that hostility. You know, if you are not in obedience to the Son of God, the wrath of God remains upon you. God is hostile toward you. But there is a decision, the most important decision that anyone will ever make. That is whether or not you will trust in God. And that means trusting in His Son, Jesus Christ. If you trust in Jesus Christ, God's hostility toward you is removed. It's removed to never be there ever again. Let's trust in Jesus Christ and have that hostility removed.
another thing to think about is what, what, one way of thinking about what hell is like is a place where God is hostile toward you and there is never any hope of assurance or encouragement ever again. You know, it looks like Saul never spoke to Samuel while Samuel was still alive. It's only after Samuel died that now he wants to talk to Samuel. It's like it's too late at this point. Turn and trust in Christ while there's time. While there's time to have that hostility removed. This is the only time you have. Today, when you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts, but trust God. And then... Samuel goes on, what, what, what can I do for you if God's against you? In fact, God is doing against you what, what he said by me in my life that he would do for you. What he would do against you. He has rejected you as king. And not only that, but you will, you will die in this upcoming battle. You and all your sons and even God himself, the Lord himself, will hand the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. He says, uh, she says, Samuel says through this medium, today uh, in this battle, you are, you are going to be with Samuel where he is. That means that is they're going to go down to the grave. Not only that, but all the, all the army of Israel. I think one of the things to, to note here is when Saul, when Saul sins, he does not sin as a private person. Sometimes we like to, to pretend that our sin doesn't affect other people. That's simply ludicrous. Our sin always affects other people. It especially affects people that we have, that we have some kind of uh, authority and responsibility over. Saul has responsibility over the nation of Israel, particularly over the army. Saul's sin means that the entire nation of Israel suffers. He is sinning as their representative. And when he sins... Everybody's brought into sin. You know, that's the structure of sin. And it's the structure of salvation. It's the structure of sin in that all of us are born in Adam. Adam, Adam acted as like our representative, like our king, like everybody's in Adam. So that when Adam sinned, we all sinned in him. It is, we are brought into death by the sin and the guilt of Adam. It is on us. We have both the guilt and the corruption of Adam. That same pattern, though, is also the pattern of salvation. Saul wasn't the last king of Israel. Adam wasn't the last Adam. Jesus Christ came and he died as the Messiah, the Christ, the one who is the king of true Israel, of all those who would ever turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. He died in the place of sinners like you and me. He died in the place of everyone who would trust in him. He died as our representative. He died not as a private person and not for his own sins, but he died in our place as our public representative of everybody who would trust in him. He is called the second Adam. The one who stands in for everybody who would trust in him. That's how salvation works. How is it that one man can die for the nation? It's because, it's because he is the king who represents the entire nation. All those people 
who trust, who, are, who have the faith of Abraham, who are true Israel, trusting in the, the true Israel, Jesus Christ. Those who are, are trusting in Jesus Christ as their king. They find hope and salvation in Jesus Christ. Well, there at the end, this is kind of a peculiar thing that happens. He's, he is obviously terrified. He, he, he has no hope from God. And when he went to look for hope to the witch of Endor, there was no hope there either. And he falls down on his face. He, he hasn't been eating. Uh, whether or not, maybe it was like his foolish decision. Sometimes we, we see maybe uh, an indication of that, that he fasted when he was on the, uh, on the when he was at, at war, when he was uh, in battle. Not a good idea. It could be that, uh, that he was just so terrified he couldn't eat. could be that, that even, even that fasting was a way to prepare for this sorcery, uh, for this false religion. Whatever it is, he's weak. And he is, he, he can't move even. And the, the, the medium says, hey, well, let me, let me fix you something to eat. Let me fix you a little something to eat. And he says, no, no, no. But, but, but he, she and Saul's men, they convince him, go ahead and eat. And she has a fattened calf. This is a, a meal fit for a king. And she goes and she slaughters that fattened calf. And, and she takes this, 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 this is a kingly feast. For Saul, this is his last meal. I want you to think about that in comparison with David. When David was on the run for his life, he ran first to the priest. These are the priests that, that Saul ended up massacring. He ran for sanctuary to Samuel and the, the prophets at Ramah. And they were the ones who took care of him. Where is Saul's last meal? It's a, it's a kingly feast, but it's with the, the witch of Endor. Is Saul eating a fat calf, or is he a fat calf? Now that is what those, those who are trying to build their kingdom here, that's what they're doing. They are fattening themselves for the day of slaughter, for the day of judgment. Don't build your kingdom here. Don't seek for, for uh, words of wisdom in worldly wisdom, in worldly religions or spiritualities or philosophies. Trust in God's word. Turn to God. Turn for salvation to Jesus Christ. It, was, it, it, it seems like in chapter 28, it's too late for Saul. It's, if you are here today, I think this has got to be good news that it's not too late for you to turn and to trust in God, in God's word, in his son, Jesus Christ. Well, the last thing that we see, finally, we see, we see deliverance from a disastrous decision. Let's read chapter 29. It's only 11 verses. It's only 11 verses. So let's read chapter 29 together. It says, Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek. And the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with the Kish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years, and since he deserted to me, and, uh, and, I, and I found no fault to him to this day? But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back. 
that he may return to the land to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to, to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the, the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in, in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and end with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the, uh, from the day of your coming to me this day. Nevertheless, the Lord do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of the Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So David is in the, there, there is kind of this, this march on the way to the battlefield. David's a part of it. This, is, this by the way, chronologically, it likely happens before Saul goes to see the, the witch of Endor. Like God is already planning everything. And David is there marching with the Philistines. And then, luck would have it, if there is such a thing as luck, which there's not. But as, as things carried out again, David doesn't talk about God in this passage. God is, uh, Akish talks about God a little bit. But that God is not really mentioned. And yet we know that God is here. We know that God is at work. David is marching along, and then some of the lords of the Philistines said, Hey, that's the guy that they used to sing songs about. David has killed his ten thousands. That is, ten thousands of Philistines. Uh, this guy, who knows that this guy might uh, take off our heads. That is, this is the guy who took off Goliath's head. This guy can't go, a kish, a kish. What are you thinking? You can't, you can't bring this guy into battle. This guy can't come. God takes care of David. David makes a bad decision. And God keeps, preserves David from the disastrous consequences of his bad decision. Now, the moral of this story is not that go ahead and make all the bad decisions that you want and God's going God's to make sure you succeed anyway. But we can say, praise God, that we do not always face the consequences for all of our bad <laughs> How merciful is our God that we don't face all the consequences for our sins. In fact, the most important consequence that we face, death, separation from God, for eternity and hell, for those of us who trust in Christ, that consequence is most assuredly taken away. And even if we do happen to face the consequences for our sins in this life, or even face unjust suffering, praise God that, that eternally, in eternity, we are not going to face the consequences for our sins. What you also see here is, is God cares a lot more about His promises than even we do. 
You think that you love eternal life. God loves it. Loves to give it to you even more than you want it. And when we trace what God is doing, when we trace the way that God is, is so particular and perseverant and patient and, and committed to keeping His promises, Abraham is faithless. He has a lapse of faith. God protects Abraham because he's protecting the promise. How often was Israel disobedient? And yet God preserved Israel because it was through Israel that the Messiah would come, the Christ would come, the Savior of all peoples would come, Jesus Christ. David endangers God's promise if it could be endangered. And yet God preserves it because it is through David, it is by the, the king that will come from the line of David, that God will save humanity, a new humanity, all those who trust in Jesus Christ. When we see God working in this way, we ought to trace it all the way through to the culmination, to the end, to the purpose of all this great plan of salvation. That People from all nations will be ransomed by the death of Jesus Christ. Even those of us who are here who are believing in Jesus Christ, even those of us who believe today, be found in Jesus Christ. Truly as written, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. You know that what that's at the end of? It's at the end of of when Paul is talking about how God saves people from all nations and how in God's plan he brings all of those that Jesus Christ died for together to save them. How much we should praise God for our salvation. And let us turn to God and trust God, trust God's word, trust God's son in every difficult situation. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, uh, we praise you for your wisdom and your power and your mercy. Who is like you, O oh God? Why would we run to other religions or other spiritualities or other philosophies, other ideas? Keep us from these things. Keep us from evil. Keep us from temptation. We know that we are weak. We are weak the way that Saul is weak. We are weak the way that David was weak. And yet, God, you hold us fast. Please hold us fast in Jesus Christ. Help us to see always, to see reality as it really is, with the eyes of faith, that you are working all things for good, that you are working, that you are answering our prayers through Jesus Christ. You are the one who gives us wisdom according to your promises. Please grant that we would not turn from you, that we would not lapse into doubt even for a moment. And when we do, Lord, please hold us fast and bring us back. Let not our folly lead to our destruction, but instead grant that by your mercy and your grace, and only by your mercy and your grace, not by our faithfulness, but by your faithfulness, not by our faithfulness, but by Christ's faithfulness, we will be counted righteous in your sight. Grant that many would turn to know you, turn from sin, and trust in Christ, even today. And Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, Saul was having this 
great, big, kingly feast before he faced destruction. Jesus gave us a small token meal that points to our salvation. Because in the bread being broken, that's a symbol of Christ's body broken for us. In the, the fruit of the vine, in the cup, is a symbol of Christ's body, Christ's uh, blood poured out for us. And it's only a little token meal because when Jesus Christ returns, then we will have the feast. The feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when all His people will be united with Jesus Christ. Turn to Christ. You can trust Christ. You can rely upon Christ. You can trust Him. He laid down His life for your sins. That's proclaimed right here. For you to hear and even touch and taste that you would know that Jesus Christ died for your sins. All of you who are trusting in Christ, all of you who are walking in obedience, who have pledged allegiance to Him through baptism, and who are walking faithfully with Him in, in, the, in the context of a local church, I want to invite you, come take bread, come take cup, and remember Jesus Christ's death for our sins.